Chapter 18 The New World The coming of the New Covenant is a story that does not need rehearsing in full here. There was a decline in the centuries before Christ, as the Jews gradually lost a true understanding of the Old Covenant and developed a corrupting tradition. The announcement of the kingdom by John the Forerunner was simultaneously a condemnation of the corruptions of Judaism, Matthew 3, 7-12. John's announcement was the preliminary judgment, and Jesus' announcement was the full judgment, Matthew 23-24. The exodus was made by our Lord on the cross on behalf of his people, Luke 9:31. After this transition, there was a new world establishment, with a new name for God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and a new name for the people, Christians, Acts 11.26. The new grant given God's people was the kingdom in its fullness, including the whole world. There was a new law, John 13.34, new sacraments, baptism, and holy communion, and a new visionary symbol, the new Jerusalem. The Summation of the Old Covenant From the perspective of the New Covenant, the Old Covenant in its entirety, from Adam to John the Baptist, was inadequate and imperfect. It was a system under law, in the sense that it could only condemn men, not save them. The entire Old Covenant stood in Adam, and Adamic humanity existed under the condemnation of the First Covenant. Having seized the forbidden fruit, they were exiled from God and destined for death. Although each of the new covenants before Christ provided a more glorious kingdom establishment for God's people, yet before the coming of the Messiah, the world was still in Adam. Thus, the glories of the old covenant could never be anything other than provisional and anticipatory. In order for a holy new covenant to come, someone had to fulfill all the righteousness of the law, something Adam had failed to do. There had to be a new Adam, and thus a new creation. And so we read that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law. Galatians 4.4 Jesus took unto himself the law, God's perfect standard of holiness, as expressed in terms matching human nature at that stage of history, and fulfilled its terms. In the death of Jesus Christ, the law, indeed the old Adamic covenant in its entirety, died. In the resurrection and transfiguration of Jesus Christ into glory, the law and the old covenant were resurrected as the new covenant. We have mentioned that during the Old Testament period, the prophets would call the people back to the standards of the earlier covenants. Though, when the revival came, the new form of the covenant would always transform and transcend the terms of the previous one. Just so, Jesus began his ministry by calling men back to the Old Covenant. His prophetic words are found in Matthew 5, 17-20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The word fulfill here does not mean simply cause to stand, but implies transformation in a newness of power. It means to bring something into its fullness, a fullness not previously seen. Thus, it is a good term to use to refer to the transformation of the old into the new. The new covenant is not going to replace the old with something different in kind, but only different in glory. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
Not one jot or one tittle shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. We have seen throughout this book, the passing away of the heavens and earth does not refer to the physical world. It often refers to a covenantal establishment. Here that is clearly what is in view. After the cross, the church certainly does not keep every jot and tittle of the old covenant law. Once Jesus had accomplished his work, the law was changed. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also, Hebrews 7.12. The old heavens and earth passed away in the first century AD. And at that time, many of the jots and tittles also passed away, their purpose fulfilled at last. Whosoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The idea here is this. Anyone who presently ignores the Old Testament law will find disgrace and condemnation in the new kingdom that will come. But anyone who scrupulously keeps all the Old Testament law at the present time will be great in the kingdom when it comes. The Pharisees, in their teaching, were setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep their traditions, Mark 7, 9. Such men were annulling some of the commandments, and they were finding condemnation. Thus Jesus concludes by saying, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. We're used to thinking of the scribes and Pharisees as the meticulous men who carefully observed the jots and tittles. This is not the portrait found in the Gospels. The scribes and Pharisees that Jesus encountered were grossly, obviously, and fragrantly breaking the Mosaic law, while keeping all kinds of man-made traditions. Jesus' condemnation of them in Matthew 23 certainly makes this clear, as does a famous story in John 8. There we read that the scribes and Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman taken in the very act of adultery, John 8, 1-11. How did they know where to find her? Where was the man who was caught with her? Apparently he was one of their cronies. Also, when Jesus asked for anyone without sin, that is, not guilty of the same crime, to cast the first stone, they all went away, because they were all adulterers. Remember the point we made in chapter 15. The Mosaic Law was an easy yoke. It was not hard to keep. The parents of John the Baptist kept it perfectly, Luke 1.6. They obeyed the law, and when they fell into sin, they did what the law said to do about it. Thus, when Jesus called the people back to the law and warned them to do a better job than the Pharisees, he was not laying some heavy burden on them. Actually, he was lightening their load. Each time the covenant changed in the Old Testament, there was a change in law. In one sense, each time the change was total in that the form of the law changed, and the historic circumstances of its phrasing and application changed. Yet, since the law reveals God's character, its fundamental content can never change. At the same time, God only reveals His law to man in specific forms and circumstances. Even the form of the Ten Commandments changed between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It is because the fundamental content of the law never changes that the prophets called men back to the older law each time. But it is because the circumstances of history change and mature that the new covenant, when it comes, is always different in form. 
The changes in law during the Old Testament were relatively minor compared to the change from the Old Adamic Covenant to the New Covenant, as we shall see. Law, Wisdom, and Paradox In calling people back to the Old Covenant law and prophets, Jesus simultaneously advanced the standards of the kingdom a step further. We have seen that God gave the people a written law for the Mosaic establishment, but that in the Davidic establishment, the focus is on wisdom based on the law. The people were to take the principles of the Mosaic law and apply them to new and changing circumstances. In the Restoration establishment, wisdom was taxed further since, under imperial rule, the Jews were unable to keep much of the law in its original form. Jesus takes us one step further, from law and wisdom to what I shall call paradox. A paradox is an apparent contradiction that forces us to meditate on deeper meanings. There is a great deal of paradox in Jesus' teaching and in the teaching of the New Testament as a whole. In the Sermon on the Mount itself, Jesus said concerning adultery, that if your eye offends you, pluck it out, and if your hand offends you, cut it off, Matthew 5:27-30. Concerning justice, Jesus said not to resist him who is evil, and to give to him who asks of you, Matthew 5:38-42. Those who wish to become pacifists and take Jesus literally on the subject of not resisting evil must also take him literally on chopping off hands and ripping out eyes. Of course no one does the latter and the Church has always recognized the wisdom paradox nature of God's teaching here. A second realm of paradox is seen in the parables, which are both clear and deliberately obscure. Jesus made it plain that he used parables in order to instruct the righteous and to confuse the wicked, Matthew 13, 10-17. This conception of truth and teaching is utterly opposed to the Greek rationalistic tradition in Western thought, which assumes that unaided reason is able to apprehend truth, Jesus says the opposite, maintaining that the truth is only finally reasonable to the elect, while the wicked can ultimately never regard it as reasonable. This applies not only to the parables, but also to the whole of truth. It is a fundamental aspect of Christian epistemology. A third realm of paradox lies in the area of reward. Speaking to the children of Israel, God, in Leviticus 26, and Moses, Deuteronomy 28, held out rewards for faithfulness and punishments for disobedience. In general, the rewards had to do with prosperity and the punishments with affliction. By the time of Solomon, wisdom had begun to perceive a more mature view of reward and punishments. In Job, the wise man found that the righteous sometimes suffer for no cause of their own. In Ecclesiastes, the wise man found that simply looking at rewards and punishments gets you nowhere in evaluating the world. In the New Testament, however, we find highlighted such thoughts as these, quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews 12, 5-8 The first part of this statement is from Proverbs 3, 11, 12. 
but it is a truth that comes to sharper focus in the New Covenant. Why? Because in dealing with children, Galatians 4, 1-3, we must express reward and punishment in terms of pleasure and pain. But in dealing with adults, we can invite the wise man to consider that chastisement is itself a reward and a sign of sonship. To be sure, the rewards and punishments expressed in Deuteronomy 28 are not abolished in the New Covenant, but with them also comes a paradoxical and wisdom-inducing reward of suffering. The Order of the Kingdom In the New Covenant, a different kind of polity was established, though it had been anticipated earlier. The synagogue, as it developed, moved gradually away from the Levites and prophets into the hands of gifted laymen. In the New Covenant, the sacramental aspects of worship were transferred from the temple to the synagogue, and the church was born. The church is the first, but not the only form of the kingdom. When the kingdom comes to a new locality, it does not come first by force of arms and the establishment of a Christian civil order. It comes first by persuasion and charity and the establishment of worship. Worship is man's first duty. When the church as a sacramental, instructional, and governmental body has become established in a locality, wisdom influences flow out into society, and a new Jerusalem is built around the new sanctuary. The transition from the Mosaic establishment to the new covenant entailed a gradual shift from civil to ecclesiastical punishments. The Mosaic law prescribed death for a variety of crimes. During the later years of the Davidic establishment, when bad kings were on the throne, the Mosaic penalties were ignored. It was necessary for the synagogues to enforce the law through excommunication. This became even more important during the Restoration, when the Jews were frequently under imperial law and could not exercise civil punishment. John 18.31 With the opening of heaven, and the restoration of the keys to man, the flaming sword given by the cherubim back to Peter and the apostles, the central form of discipline in the kingdom became excommunication, Matthew 16.19. The wielding of these keys, which must always be in terms of biblical standards, is a far more powerful social force than mere capital punishment, according to the spiritual insight of the new covenant. Of course, when the church influences society, then godly punishments are set up in society as well. All the same, the most important fulfillment of the Old Testament penalties lies in the sanctions exercised by the elders of the church. The Restoration of Type and Symbol The Jews of this period had almost completely perverted the law. As we have seen, they were not keeping the moral requirements of the law. Neither did they understand the symbolic aspects. When Jesus told the Jews that if they destroyed the temple, he would raise it up in three days, referring to his body, they were utterly confused, John 2, 19-21. Similarly, when Jesus talked with Nicodemus and referred to the water-cleansing rites of the Old Covenant as a means of resurrection and new birth, Nicodemus was confused. Jesus expressed amazement, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? John 3:10. In the first century, the Jews had rejected biblical symbolism and typology and were divided into two groups. The Pharisees had turned symbolism into moralism and were keeping the law as a means of salvation. 
The Alexandrian Jews had replaced biblical typology with allegories grounded in Greek philosophy. As a result, neither group was able to recognize Christ when he came to them. It was the task of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament to restore true biblical symbolism and typology, and to show how the Old Testament revealed Christ. It is for that reason, among others, that John writes his gospel as a tour through the tabernacle that Paul explains that the tabernacle and temple were symbols both of the individual believer and the corporate church, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19, that the author of Hebrews expresses shock that his hearers do not understand the Old Testament symbolism and typology, Hebrews 5.12, and that Jesus had to explain the typology of the Old Testament to the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24.27. Thus, when Jesus came to be the true prophet, He first of all had to restore the Old Covenant, both in its moral and in its symbolic dimensions. An interesting example of this, alluded to above, is found throughout the Gospel of John. In John's Gospel, Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Before looking at this, let us consider the relevance of it. If Jesus Christ is God's true tabernacle, then we who are in Christ are in that true body-politic house of God. Moreover, since the cosmic heavens and earth are also imaged in the tabernacle, if Christ is the true tabernacle, then all the cosmic heavens and earth must also come to be in Christ, so that in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 By presenting Christ as the true tabernacle, John is not simply giving us snapshots of redemption in the narrow sense. He is also presenting us with a worldview, a new universe. As Paul puts it in Colossians 1, the second person of the Trinity was the center of the first universe, and the God-man Christ Jesus is the center of the new universe, Colossians 1, 15-20. First, creation. A. He is the image of the invisible God. B. The firstborn, in other words, captain, of all creation. C. For in him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. D. All things have been created through him and for him. 2. Restoration. A. He is also the head of the body, the church. B. He is the beginning, the firstborn, in other words, captain, from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. C. For all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him, through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. D. Through him, whether things on earth or things in the heavens. Accordingly, the tabernacle commentary aspect of John's gospel is not merely a curiosity. It is rather a profound statement of the nature of biblical worldview. In Christ, the entire social order and the entire cosmic order are renewed. One other point that should be made is this. John's gospel is not only a commentary on the tabernacle. John also comments on the various feasts of the Old Testament, and on other matters as well. The tabernacle is only one dimension, one layer, of his gospel. With this in mind, let us briefly tour the tabernacle. John begins in John 1.14 by saying that the Word became flesh, and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The reference to glory is to the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle and was enthroned in it. 
John begins where the priest would begin, with the laver of cleansing. Here the priest would wash himself and also the sacrifice before offering it. Jesus is both priest and sacrifice, and also the one who washes his living sacrifices, the church. Thus John 1, 18-34 concerns the baptism of John the forerunner. In John 2, 1-11, at a wedding, Jesus takes water out of six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, and turns it into wine. In John 2, 13-25, Jesus cleanses the temple. In John 3, 1-21, Nicodemus engages Jesus in a discussion of the new birth of water and the Spirit. In John 3, 22-36, John's baptism leads to an argument over purification and a discussion of Jesus as the bridegroom. In John 4, 1-42, Jesus presents himself as bridegroom to a Samaritan woman at a well. In John 4, 46-54, Jesus restores a dying boy to life at Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. In John 5, 1-47, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda, and then gets into a discussion with the Jews about resurrection. This concludes John's section on the laver, which has revolved around water, purification, baptism, resurrection, and the Christ as bridegroom. John then turns to the table of showbread. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, calls himself the bread of life, and tells the people that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. In John 7, Jesus presents himself as the drink of life, recalling the libations that went with the showbread and meal offerings. The lampstand comes next. Jesus presents himself as the light of the world in John 8. In John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. In John 10, Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd. The connection of this to the lampstand lies in the fact that David was the good shepherd of the Old Covenant, and the Bible repeatedly speaks of David as a lamp, 2 Samuel 21.17, 1 Kings 11.36.15.4, 2 Kings 8.19, and 2 Chronicles 21.7. There is a conceptual parallel between a lamp shining in a dark place and the voice of the shepherd heard by the sheep. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus, explaining that it is a matter of awakening from darkness and sleep to light and day. In John 12, Jesus comments that those who had not believed in him were blind, but that those who did believe would become sons of light. Starting in John 13, we move through these items of furniture a second time. Jesus washes the disciples' feet in 13, 1-20. He breaks bread with them in 13, 30 Then he moves into a discussion of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate archetype of the seven lamps in the tabernacle, John 14-16. After this, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer at the altar of incense, John 17. The crucifixion and death of Jesus involved a double motion in terms of the tabernacle. The sacrifice was made outside the tabernacle in the courtyard on the altar. Then on the Day of Atonement, the high priest took the blood into the Most Holy and presented it before the throne of God, Leviticus 16.15. Just so, we see the Lamb of God sacrificed outside the gate, and then he presents his death before the Father's throne, Hebrews 9, 7, and 23-26. Under the law, when the high priest came back out from the Most Holy, still alive, it was a sign that God had accepted the sacrifice. 
The resurrection of Jesus fulfilled that type. Also, when the high priest offered the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he put aside his garments of glory and beauty and wore a simple linen garment. Agreeably, when Peter entered the tomb, he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, John 26, because Jesus had put back on his garments of glory and beauty, Leviticus 16.4 and 23-24. When Mary Magdalene looked into the tomb, she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying, John 20.12. Arthur Pink comments, quote, who can doubt that the Holy Spirit would have us link up this verse with Exodus 25, 17-19? And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, and thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat. End quote. The tomb enclosed by the great stone formed but one more most holy place, all the more so because here the incarnate word was placed. Outside this tomb was a garden, John 19:41 a reminder of the garden sanctuary of the tabernacle. When Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, she rightly recognized him as the new gardener, the new Adam, John 20.15. The Magdalene, restored from her seven demons, Mark 16.9, symbolizes the church, the new Eve. John is not finished with his Edenic motifs. As God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2.7, so Jesus breathes life into his apostles in John 20:22. 20, As naked Adam hid in the garden, so naked Peter hid in the sea until Jesus restored him, John 21:7. As Adam named the animals, so Peter and the rest of the disciples are told to guard and feed Christ's sheep, 21:15-17. Thus our Lord wrapped himself in the garment of the old creation and in his death and resurrection created it anew. But what is this new creation like? The New Heavens and Earth According to Revelation 21.1, the work of Christ brought about a new heavens and earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. This is explained a few verses later as the new Jerusalem coming from heaven overlaid a high mountain which is the earth. Thus, the New Jerusalem mountain complex is a picture of the new heavens and earth. This is often nowadays taken to refer to the final eternal estate, but I believe the older commentaries are right in referring to it first of all to the gospel age. After all, in the New Jerusalem, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations, Revelation 22.2, something that will not be needed after the last judgment. Also, people are invited to wash their robes and enter the gates, 22.14, and the spirit and bride summon outsiders to come in, 22.17. Clearly, such evangelism will not take place after the last judgment. So while the fullness of the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth will not come until after the last judgment, yet they are spiritual realities now. Thus, Hebrews 12.22 says that we have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Both the literal heavens and the governmental heavens have been changed. The literal heavens were changed when a man, Jesus Christ, ascended into them for the first time and sat down next to God the Father, Hebrews 9.24, Revelations chapter 4-5. through 5. This has never been the case before, because Adam and his posterity had been barred from the garden and from heaven. Now that Jesus has taken his throne, there is no longer any room for Satan in heaven, and at last Satan is cast out. Revelation 
The change in the literal heavens necessitated a change in the governmental heavens. The saints are seated in heaven with Christ, Ephesians 2.6, and thus are stars, Philippians 2.15. The total church is pictured as seven lampstands, with her elders as seven stars, Revelation 1.20. Thus the church as a whole, and her leaders in particular, constitute the new heavens. The old heavens are cast down. In the old covenant, there were two political heavens, the sun, moon, and stars of Israel, and the sun, moons, and stars of the nations. The heavens of Israel were destroyed in A.D. 70, and this is pictured in Revelation 6.11 as the fall of her sun, moon, and stars. The heavens of the nations began to be shaken down immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, according to Matthew 24.29. As regards the earth, we find the same dual change. The literal earth was changed at Pentecost by the descent of the Spirit. Until the ascension there had never been a man in heaven, and until Pentecost the fullness of the Spirit had never been poured out on the earth. The coming of the Spirit literally changed the earth. This literal and cosmic change on the earth resulted in governmental changes as well. Previously, the priest had possessed a status different from that of the lay Israelite. Only priests were permitted to draw near into the holy place. Now, however, all believers are in Christ. And in Christ there can be no distinction of access. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And in Him all believers have fuller access than anyone had in the Old Covenant. Also, formerly Jew and Gentiles had been separated, with the Jews as priests to the nations, and only Jews allowed to draw near into the courtyard and eat Passover. Now, however, all believers are in Christ, and in Christ there can no longer be such distinctions. Thus, the Jew-Gentile distinction was obliterated, Ephesians 2, 11-22. As a result of the elimination of these distinctions, the distinction between priestly garden and lay Israelite land is broken down. Also, the distinction between an Edenic land and other lands is eliminated. In fact, since the Gentile lands were often pictured as the sea, there is no longer any sea, Revelation 21.1. Moreover, with the outpouring of the Spirit and immediate access to heaven anywhere, there can no longer be any central sanctuary on the earth, Hebrews 9.10. 10, 19 through 22, 12, 18 through 24, and Matthew 18, 20. The central sanctuary is in heaven, where Christ is. These fundamental reorganizations mean that the kind of cosmic model found in the Old Testament will no longer do. We no longer have five environments with five different degrees of access to God heaven, firmament heaven, sanctuary, land, world. Now all believers have the same access and all believers are outside. There are only two environments. The concept of the world changes in the New Covenant. Formerly, the world included converted and unconverted Gentiles, all those outside the land. Now, however, world implies the realm outside the kingdom altogether. The New Testament speaks of worldliness and of the world flesh and devil in a way not found in the Old Testament. Practically speaking, the distinction between places of worship, sanctuaries, places of family life, homes, and places of work, world, is still valid. The distinction no longer has anything to do with nearness to God, however. There are no more holy places on earth, only designated places. 
The radical character of this change is pointed to by Christ in his curse upon old Jerusalem. That upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Matthew twenty-three thirty-five through 36 Since the temple in view, being rebuilt by Herod, had only come into existence with Ezra, we might expect its destruction to include all the martyrs from then on. But that is not what Jesus said. Since Jerusalem had been built by David, we might expect her destruction to include all the martyrs from then on. But that is not what Jesus said. Since the Old Covenant received a definite proclamation by Moses, we might expect its destruction to include all the martyrs from then on. But that is not what Jesus said. Since the present heavens and earth, 2 Peter 3.7, had been set up after the flood, we might expect its destruction to include all the martyrs from then on. But that is not what Jesus said. No, Jesus went all the way back to the original order of creation, to the first martyr. The whole order of the first creation with its heavens, sanctuary, Eden world divisions was going to be wiped out. A new creation had come. Thus, the cosmic model presented in Revelations chapter 21 through 22 is different from anything found in the Old Testament. There are only two environments, inside the New Jerusalem and outside the New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is a hollow pyramid, a shell of gems that comes out of heaven and is laid over a high mountain, Revelation 21.10. It symbolizes the body politic of the church, 21.12 and 14. It is sanctuary and land rolled together and set up on earth as in heaven, so that it is four square in shape like the heavenly most holy, 21.16. It has no temple because it is so tall that it pokes through the firmament, except that there is no longer any firmament, to the very throne of God, 21.1. Unlike tabernacle and temple, which were enclosed and thus dark except for the lamps, New Jerusalem is open and always daytime, 21, 23, and 25. In summary, the symbol of the new covenant gives us only two environments. There is the holy, combined heaven, sanctuary, and land of the new Jerusalem, and there is the defiled, combined hell and world of those outside her walls. The ministry of the church is to persuade them to flee through her gates and be saved. History the coming of the new creation was in three phases. The first phase was in Jesus Christ alone. During the years of his earthly ministry, he was the kingdom. His disciples followed him and experienced a foretaste of his kingdom. But before Pentecost, the kingdom did not come to them. Only then were they clothed with power from on high. The new kingdom could not be envisioned by the disciples. They and the rest of the Jews believed that Jesus would simply restore the glories of the Davidic monarchy in an imperial form. This was a logical vision for them to hold in terms of the development of history, but it was an error. Just as the Hebrews in Egypt could not have envisioned the tabernacle, just as the Israelites of Samuel's day could not have envisioned the temple, so the Jews of Jesus' day could not have envisioned the new covenant. Before Pentecost, the disciples were still so confused as to ask when Jesus was coming to restore the kingdom to Israel, Acts 1.6. After Pentecost, the believers continued to be somewhat confused over the relationship of Jews and Greeks, 
so that it took miracles, confrontations, and a church council to establish the new nature of the new covenant. Acts chapters 10 through 11, Galatians 2, 11 through 21, and Acts 15. The second phase lasted from Pentecost in AD 30 to Holocaust in AD 70. This phase is known in the New Testament as the last days, a phrase that unfortunately has been often misapplied to the time just before Christ's second coming. During this phase, Ishmael and Isaac were together in the house, competing for possession of the kingdom. Finally, Ishmael was cast out, and Isaac stood forth as sole heir, Galatians 4, 22-31. Also, during this 40-year period, the church despoiled the old covenant of its treasures, as Israel spoiled Egypt and as David spoiled the Philistines. These treasures built the new temple of God, his church. Thus, during this period, the old heavens and earth coexisted with the new. What came down upon the disciples at Pentecost was God's glory cloud. When we remember that the tabernacle and temple were old covenant architectural models of the glory cloud, it is apparent that the new Jerusalem descended from heaven at Pentecost. What John sees in Revelation 21 is but a picture of what happened in Acts 2. It was on Pentecost that God gave the law from Mount Sinai. As the cloud covered Mount Sinai with wind and fire and thunder, so there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, Acts 2.2. The cloud was also filled with fire, which was distributed to the disciples, Acts 2.3. As the cloud filled the tabernacle and temple, so the cloud filled the whole house where they were sitting, Acts 2.2. In the old covenant, when the cloud filled the house, the priest had to flee, but in the new covenant, the church is in Christ and thus is not driven away from the throne. See also Exodus 40.35 and 2 Chronicles 5.14. The heavenly cloud pattern typologically imprinted itself on the house, creating a new world, and also upon the individuals in the house, filling them with the Spirit, Acts 2.4, and creating a new humanity. The often controversial gift of other tongues was bestowed at Pentecost, According to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, 20-22, one of the primary meanings of this gift, if not the only one, was as a sign of judgment upon Israel. The gospel was going to the Gentiles and would be preached in new languages. If Israel was to hear it, they would have to hear it in other tongues. Indeed, the New Testament would be written not in Hebrew, but in Greek. Such languages would sound like drunken speech. Isaiah 28, 7-10, Acts 2, 13-15, but would actually communicate judgment. Throughout the book of Acts, the gospel went to the Jews first, and then to the Gentile. Finally, in Acts 28, 28, Paul declared to the Jews that full judgment was coming upon them, and that the kingdom had been taken from them. Finally, after the elimination of the competition in AD 70, the new kingdom stood forth in glory. The former heavens and earth were done away, and the new had fully come. Yet, while the initial coming of the kingdom was in three stages, there is yet a fourth and final stage to come. After AD 70, God made it clear who the true heirs of the old covenant really were. All the same, the church still exists in conflict in this world, and no matter how glorious the kingdom may become, she will still experience difficulty and death and will still coexist with unbelievers. Only with the second coming of Christ will the kingdom be finally come in all its fullness.
typology. It remains only to note that all the different heavens and earth, all the different establishments of the Old Covenant are typological of the New. There is instruction for the Church in every aspect of the Old Testament. The book of Revelation, which deals largely with the destruction of Old Jerusalem, begins with letters to seven churches. The message to these churches is this, You are the true heirs of the Old Covenant, but watch out. If you commit the same sins as Jerusalem, you will be punished as Jerusalem is about to be punished, so take heed. Each of these seven churches was a true and separate church existing in Asia Minor. In the providence of God, however, each church was in a different spiritual state. These seven states correspond to seven stages of Old Covenant history. We have only explored six of them in this book. The imagery used to describe each church is drawn from the stage of history appropriate to it. What we learn from this is that we can draw parallels between our present churches and civilization to specific times in the Old Covenant, analogies that will help us understand our present predicament. I shall make an attempt to do just that in chapter 19. Conclusion The New Covenant establishment can be set out as follows. New names, for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, for the people, Christians. Grant, the New Jerusalem which is the Church and the Kingdom, and the world as the place New Jerusalem is to permeate. Promise, I will be with you even until the end of the world. Stipulations, sacramental, water baptism and Holy Communion. Stipulation societal, the entire biblical law transformed through wisdom and paradox into the new covenant as illustrated but not exhausted in the epistles. Polity for the church. Temple sacraments and synagogue preaching are rolled together. There is no longer any bloodline of priests. The church is the first form of the kingdom around which a new culture develops. Polity for the state. Romans 13 says that the civil magistrate is set up by God to be an avenger of blood. Under Christian influence, the magistrate is persuaded to avenge blood according to the standards of the Bible. Christ is the world emperor before whom every local prince is to be persuaded to bow the knee. But note, we have moved beyond priest-kings, judges, kings, or emperors, depending on times and places, the typological principle expressed above, Any of these kinds of governments can be appropriate, provided it is Christian. Symbol The New Jerusalem